primary care knowledge boost, trans health in general practice. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us. Today we have an episode that's been a long time in planning, all about care of transgender and non-binary patients in primary care. Yeah, we were very fortunate to be able to talk to our guest today, Dr. Luke Wookie, who is a GP in Greater Manchester, who works for the transgender and non-binary healthcare. And we have Joanna Bircher, who some of you may recognise from previous episodes. She's a GP in Greater Manchester. And joining her also is her daughter, Ava Bircher, to gain her insights on trans care. There is so much to talk about within this subject area and yeah. um, we had to make a decision about what to cover in this episode. Um, we didn't particularly focus on issues that disproportionately affect the trans and non-binary community, though we do touch on these briefly towards the end of the chat. Yeah, we thought that may name today that might be worthwhile considering we're sort of thinking from a completely blank perspective of, of not having had any formal training or teaching in this um, from a primary care perspective. Um, so we base the questions around gender questioning, transgender and non-binary patients accessing primary care and um, just getting the basics right in terms of simple terminology and ways in which our practices can work towards becoming a welcoming environment. Um, our discussion on definitions led us to talk about some of the logistics in general practice, such as coding and screening. Um, and we also touched briefly on treatment options, um, most specifically the details that primary care clinicians may find helpful in this area. Yeah, and we're aware that it's an incredibly sensitive area and we're so grateful for everyone's perspectives here today. We thought it was incredibly important and we're very privileged to be able to give the airtime that we have <laughs> and um, that we get to hear these wonderful perspectives and get teaching on it. So we hope you find it as enlightening as we did. Um, so if we go around the room, can you introduce yourself and explain a bit about how you came to be on this podcast? Yes, um, my name is Luke Wookie and I am a primarily a GP, but also the clinical lead for Indigo Gender Service, which is a, a new two year NHS pilot uh, that has been commissioned by NHS England across the, ho the whole of Greater Manchester. Hi, and I'm Joanna Bircher. I'm a GP also in Staley Bridge in Greater Manchester, um, and I'm the clinical director of the Greater Manchester GP Excellence Programme. And my name is Ava Bircher. I am Joanna's daughter, and I've been invited on this as, as a trans woman who is trying to get some more information about the way trans healthcare works within the Greater Manchester area. Perfect. Um, so, shall we start with definitions? Um, can you talk us through some of the definitions that we might need for this chat, all about gender? Sure, we'll do. Yeah, there's some really key terminology when we're talking about gender and gender identity, and often a lot of confusion about terms as well. So, a lot of people use uh, sex or biological sex and gender interchangeably, but actually they're very different entities. So biological sex is, is fixed and determined at a level of genetic makeup, so chromosomes, but also has a physical uh, and physiological basis such as hormones um, and sexual and reproductive organs. Um, usually sex is assigned at birth, so when a baby is born, um, someone, either a doctor or a midwife, looks at their external genitalia 
it and says it's a boy or it's a girl and this gets marked on the birth certificate and that is often the way for the rest of that person's life. Gender is different. So gender refers to characteristics of people which are socially constructed. And this includes norms, behaviours and roles which are associated with being a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. Um, as a social construct, this varies between societies and does change over time as well. And gender identity is a, a person's innate sense of their own gender. So whether that is male or female or neither. Um, so those are the three main terms when we're, we're looking at lo looking at gender identity. So most people are as what we call cisgendered. So their biological sex is the same as their gender identity. Uh, but for transgender people, then there is a difference between the sex they were assigned at birth and their experienced gender. Um, and non-binary people are people that um, neither identify as male or female. So this is some of the key terminology, but also looking around diagnosis, I think, is important. So trans people entering a medical pathway in the in the UK need a diagnosis uh, to be able to access certain treatments such as hormones or surgery. Uh, and the diagnosis that's increasingly commonly used is gender incongruence rather than gender dysphoria. Uh, and that's characterized by a marked and persistent difference between the sex you were assigned at birth and your experience gender now. So in my opinion, a very easy diagnosis to make because if you listen to people and you listen to their experiences of how they feel inside, um, they are giving you all the information you need to, to be able to support them in that decision process. Yeah. Just want to say that um, I've never encountered the phrase gender incongruent before, but I'd like to say that I very much would like to define myself as gender incongruent. I think it's a fantastic phrase it, it made me wonder as well luke um is there because we think about our kind of medical records and diagnosis and what we code is there a is there a snowmed code for gender incongruence because i i'm not sure i have tried eight months ago i put a request to nhs digital for okay. some new codes and still it's being processed okay. um so the coding currently snowmed codes for gender are not up to date there's some very old-fashioned codes that are uh, terminology that we no longer that no longer use in in trans health so mm -hmm. the coding aspect is, is is a really important thing that we need for our primary care systems but unfortunately uh, currently it's not up to date um, so yes, in terms of gender incongruence, it's it's a really good term that's demedicalizing and depathologizing trans people um, because previously gender dysphoria was under the mental health section of the ICD um, coding manual uh, and in the most up-to-date version, which is ICD-11 of the WHO, we now talk about gender incongruence um, and that's been moved from the mental health section to the sexual health section. And many people will, will ask, well, why do we need a diagnosis or, or a code? But currently, as I said, to access, be able to access um, health services related to, to gender, people need a diagnosis. Grand. Um, so we wanted to think a little bit about access to primary care and get your perspective, Eva, on what you might be worried about um, if you were to go and access your GP. So I think... Um a potential barrier that a lot of trans people might encounter um, is difficulties 
um, with the very front of house of the of the general practice, ensuring that the the way you're kind of treated and understood and recognised by maybe the reception staff is affirming and with the name and pronouns that you would like to be identified as. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that there's an immediate worry because if it's not immediately recognised at that moment, it can be quite disconcerting and can kind of push you away. And so I. Um, if I was going into an in-person situation where I was sitting in a reception, I'm sitting in the in a waiting room, for example, waiting to go talk to a GP, something that I would like to see is uh, things like posters and uh, signs around demonstrating that it is an LGBT-friendly establishment, an actively LGBT-friendly establishment, um, using the right kind of terminology and the kind of terminology that was just used then, just, just, to, just to kind of affirm to any gender questioning or trans person within that room that they're going to be understood on their own terms and not going to be kind of assessed and judged because a big part of the process as you mentioned with how we need to get a diagnosis before you can get care Mm -hmm. is ultimately there's this fear that we are going to be having to prove ourselves to essentially to the state or to the health services and get them to agree with us on our own human experience which is worrying because it's often it's an experience it's incredibly hard to articulate because it's a very emotional experience um so it's one which i don't know how you'd be able to prove or disprove it to an external body especially one that might not understand what being trans is which is why it's so important to get those definitions really correct and really on point so i think the main worry um, I think the, the big thing that, that the big barrier is the idea that we're going to have to prove something which we don't fully understand ourselves or might not have finished understanding yet mm. and not quite sure where our gender journey is going to end up and yet have to kind of get an external body to affirm that to you before mm. you can even access healthcare. So I think incredibly personal. Yes. It is absolutely. Yeah. It's not many other people, you know, pa- patients would have to talk so personally about something. Definitely, you know, um, and it's it's a situation which um, requires a lot of understanding and empathy from the side of a care provider and all the peripheral things as well, which, such as with the reception staff, ensuring that that initial um, interaction is affirming and on the mm-hmm. right path, almost. So, for example, with my experience. Um, when I spoke to my GP, it was an on-the-phone appointment, which um, in in some ways lowered the the barrier and made it a little bit less intimidating mm. because there was no physical waiting in a space where I might get cold feet. You know, I was just waiting for a phone call, yeah. Um, yeah. which made it harder for me to back out. Um, <laughs> and um, but uh, in that situation, what was really lovely was that um, when it came to being recognised and affirmed. So the names that would be used, the pronouns that we used in those in day-to-day interactions, that was sorted incredibly quickly. Mm-hmm. That was the, the first thing which my doctor got sorted. But it means that going forward, if I'm accessing any care that actually isn't gender related for my doctor, for other health reasons, I know that, I'm, that that is gonna be part of my record yeah. with my GP. Yeah. And I'm not suddenly gonna be, that's gonna be switched when I'm not dealing with trans-specific healthcare. Yeah, perfect. Um, so you have mentioned quite a few things there, which is really useful. Um, the uh, the bits about the kind of welcoming space whenever you come in, the welcoming reception area, um, rapid name changes, not having a lot of kind of hoops to jump through to get that. Um, what else do you think primary care clinicians could do to help make their surgery safe spaces? 
Uh, there's something that's um, I, I find a bit of a challenge, and, and since the COVID pandemic, we haven't particularly been using these anyway. But the check-in screens that many surgeries have in the waiting room, where people, you know, arrive for their appointment and check in on the screen, the, one of the first questions they ask is gender, mm, and yeah. you have to choose male or female. And um, and I, I've got no idea why that is. I'm assuming it makes their database easier to search for people's names, but it seems completely unnecessary and a little bit antiquated. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure whether any you know pressure can be put on those bodies to change that. As it is, they're infection control risks, aren't they? So probably none of us are using them anymore. So it may become maybe less relevant now. But um, but still a really kind of a an important thing. There's so if Ava's changed her name and preferred pronouns at her GP, but actually the gender marker on her records is still male, then mm. when if she was to check in on an automatic screen, it, it wouldn't find her if she put female. And it, those things, they might seem like small things, but they're pretty important, I think. Yeah. And I, I think that um, that's, that point is of particular importance for those whose gender identity is outside of the binary, so mm. non-binary yeah. genderqueer people who wouldn't be able to put the they haven't got an option yeah cis or trans that option isn't there and i think that that experience for non-binary people must be quite frustrating because when it comes to being um i wouldn't consider myself a binary trans person but um the kind of switching from one binary to another binary is easier for people to understand whereas i'm thinking about doctors or reception staff if if you were going in and you were saying no my pronouns are they them and i am non-binary unless they've been told about it, the prevailing reaction would be to not believe that it, it's really a thing. Mm. Or, or and a, a very common thing that I encounter um, is people's response to that is, oh, I can't use they, them because um, I would consider it rude to call someone they, them and not she, him. And there's quite, I've, my, quite a few of my non-binary friends have encountered that before where people mm. say, oh, I couldn't do that because it feels a bit dehumanizing. But for that non-binary person, it's dehumanising to, to, to have to be forced into a binary which yeah, they don't yeah. affirm and they don't fit. Yeah. So I think, I think practice will help as yeah. well, just practising the pronouns. And like, practising the pronouns and also resisting that urge to when you've been challenged and when you realise that this person is non-binary and is outside your frame of reference, you don't need to reflexively defend yourself and give the reasons why you got it wrong. You can just get it wrong and be like, I'm sorry, and move forwards. Yeah, not completely. That's really useful information. Thank you. Um, and then I guess asking Luke, you the same thing. What mm -hmm. do you think primary care clinicians could do to help make their surgery safer places mm -hmm. for trans people? Yeah, I was just thinking then when we were talking about non-binary people, making sure that your toilets are gender neutral. Mm -hmm. That's a really important aspect uh, for trans and non-binary non people, having those posters in your waiting room. But obviously our waiting rooms are a bit quieter than usual at the moment. So mm -hmm. having things on our website about um, links to, to trans and non-binary healthcare uh, and also Pride in Practice, which is an amazing scheme across Greater Manchester that's run by the LGBT Foundation that uh, promotes excellence in LGBT healthcare uh, within the primary care setting. So practices that have awards, um, displaying those awards within in waiting rooms and on the websites can really make trans and non-binary people feel more comfortable. And I've had many patients say, oh, I saw your, your poster in the waiting room and I feel more comfortable to to now talk about to talk about these thoughts and feelings um 
other things that I've considered are pronoun badges. So um, practice staff to have pronoun badges that, that, that they wear. An important thing is to that goes along with that is to have some education for staff about the importance of wearing these kind of badges. And if you do wear a pronoun badge, it can make uh, trans or non-binary people feel that you are an ally and someone you could talk to so that there must be some training alongside that to, to understand what that what that means yeah. um and a big thing for me and something that i've worked on in the past is trans status monitoring so making sure when you're got your new patient registration forms that you're asking alongside ethnicity um, and uh, religion that you're asking gen- uh, sexual orientation and uh, gender identity yeah, because um, I recently signed up for a GP and those options weren't mm-hmm. on the application form. So yeah. I think it would have appreciated if mm-hmm. if that could have been done before my first appointment yeah. through that process. Mm-hmm. Because apart from that being a supportive thing for trans people, it also lets us see our practice demographics and what and what's going on it can help us tailor services uh, to trans and non-binary people particularly around screening and so on so it's a phrase we use um, if you're not counted we don't we don't count so unless we're asking people their gender identity how can we direct and focus services towards them yeah yeah 100%. i think that's also um that point overlaps with the importance of pronoun badges because pronoun badges allow LGBT people to see each other within certain situations and um, like trans and non-binary people if, if you've got a non-binary person who's working in reception or as a doctor their gender identity is clear immediately which is quite helpful because um, that means a, an LGBT person can assume that that person has a certain level of knowledge and experience mm-hmm. um, pronoun badges I, I think in general are really good because they denormalize the idea that one's gendered appearance on first impression is the same as their gender identity mm-hmm. and, it, and, it, and it removes that it, the necessity of assumption because you've just got it there right there yeah. and therefore you don't need to get it wrong yeah. so in, in professional circumstances pronoun badges are very useful mm. um so thinking more about logistics still just in terms of the actual way of changing patients records for their gender preferences and their name on their clinical records so have you got advice about that I have. This one is very simple. It's very easy to do. Um, there seems to be a lot of confusion about what you can and can't do. You do not need a deed poll. You do not need a legal name change. You do not need a Gender Recognition Act certificate to change your name, um, gender marker or title on your NHS records. Really? Yes. Because that is not my experience. No, this GP. is very many people's experience. <sighs> um, and unfortunately, it's completely wrong and it's, and, and it's frustrating. So anyone can change their... I I practiced this the other day on my Minnie Mouse uh, patient, my test patient on my system, and it's extremely easy, easy to do. Uh, Primary Care Support England have got some really clear guidance on their website with a nice flow chart about how to change people's name, gender marker and title. So... There is a slight nuance with changing gender marker. So name and title can be changed very easily. Uh, many non-binary people prefer an MX title, mm-hmm. um, which is which is easy to, mm, to do. Um, a lot of GP surgeries say to trans people, no, we can only change you to MX. And that's really not affirming someone's gender, gender identity. Yeah. 
Uh, if that person then wishes to change their gender marker, so from male to female or vice versa, there's a process then to go through um, with an online form to fill in because you then generates a new NHS number for that patient. Mm. Uh, then all the notes have to be migrated over to the new medical record as we would do a, a summary of patient's record, uh, but all previous um, information about their name or gender and the old NHS number have to be redacted before it's put onto the new record. So that's a bit more of a complex, more of a complex process. And I think it's really important that we speak to every trans or non-binary person that wishes to change their gender marker uh, about the pros and cons of doing that because there can be significant implications such as for screening or significant mm. diagnoses previously um, that, that may be important. So a good idea would be for each practice to have an admin champion around trans health that understands this process clearly or a particular clinician in the practice that would have a consultation with a trans person who wished to change their gender marker and create a new NHS record. I always think it's a kind of shame that um, somebody's changed that their gender but they've not they're still the same person and as a mum I absolutely know that because clearly Ava is the same person that I brought up um, and so I just feel that the fact that they lose all those things from their medical records which are important to them is is um, is, is a really negative thing mm. and feels almost like we can't think about the old person as if that person mm. never existed and actually it's still exactly the same person but with the gender that they that they feel comfortable with so is there anything going on do, do you know Luke nationally to to challenge that whole new medical record aspect many patients are happy to to still have their their old their old record and everything could be transferred over you know so it is very individual where other patients want no reference at all to oh so it the, can be transferred over or does it, it have to, be, has manu to be manual manually recoding everything yeah okay. yeah it's a, it's a lot of effort it's a lot of effort <laughs> so, especially for say someone who's got a complex medical history exactly. or an older trans person with um, more medical notes and things. So it is that the, there are there are conversations underway. We know the IT systems that we work with are not ideal, especially for transferring information. And Luke, who has to do all that manual recoding? Is that the practice staff or is it that is. PCSE? Okay. Yeah, down to practice level. That's a lot of extra work. Um, sounds a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare. I think a lot of the conversation around trans health within the NHS is going to be conversations about how we modernise mm. bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting point, definitely, because the next bit we were going to talk about was, like you say, there's pros and cons to doing that. Mm. And one of the things that we worry about as GPs is not missing, that I'm sure lots of people worry about, not, not missing screening opportunities and that, that routine recall for, for patients. Yeah. Um, so can you talk us through a bit about that? Yeah, unfortunately, this, this one's a complete health inequality for, for trans people because it's essentially left up to the person to opt in to screening programmes mm. if you change your gender marker. So for a trans man who still has a cervix and has not had top surgery, uh, they should be he should be having uh, cervix screening and breast screening offered at least. Mm. Um and currently what, what happens is that's left up to the, the GP practice or the patient to opt in each time that screening is needed to, to be done. Every time? Every oh. single time. So it's not a single opt-in. Not even a single opt-in, that's... Mm -hmm. 
wow that's again unnecessary yeah. and um outdated and actually a clear breach of the 2010 equalities act so it is yeah <laughs> a bit outrageous it is um and again it goes back to systems that we're working with it would be very much better to move to organ specific screening rather mm. than yeah. gender specific screening and there is some work going on to, to look at that but we're, we're working with old it systems that are not easy easy to to change overnight for the whole of the population so it's a huge concern concern of mine um about people missing screening because surely the trans experience there were lots of different trans and non-binary identities that so for example people who are agender identify as not having a gender so they wouldn't have a gender marker which means they again they wouldn't get called for any screenings on any circumstance and then people who might be um because there's a lot of overlap between the intersex and transgender communities for obvious reasons we have a lot of aligning goals so a coalition has been formed um obviously intersex people would probably much prefer to go by the organ by organ basis because their physical bodies don't fit the traditional binary. Yep. Um, so is a procedure... It seems in- to make complete sense, doesn't it? Yeah. To have, the, to have this, but um, we still live in a very cis-heteronormative Indeed. world. Indeed, indeed we do. That when It doesn't always consider that there are people outside of the... The standard. The, the standard or the perceived norm. The perceived norm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Out of interest, if someone has changed their gender markers, could they be called for the wrong screening? Yeah, yes. I've heard that. But yes. That's not great either. Yeah, no. I don't want to, I don't think I want to be called for like a cervical sweep. No, that would so be a waste of NHS resources, a, yeah. surely. Yeah. But a trans, a trans woman would be called for a cervix screen. Mm-hmm. But a trans woman who's been on hormones for long enough has a disproportionate, uh, to a similar level of cis women, as far as I'm aware, to getting breast cancer. They should go. You should, yeah. Trans women on hormones uh, should have breast screening. Yes, and that's actually the. And I would, I would be called for that. Okay. Current evidence shows that risk is actually very low um, of uh, increased risk of of breast cancer in trans women on estrogen. More studies and research are, are, are needed. But it's not looking like it's a, a huge increase of, okay. of, of risk at the current at the current time. Because um, cis men can get breast cancer as well, sure. anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah. True. that's really good to know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thinking again from that primary care perspective, what advice have you got? Whoever would like to go first with this one about um, a clinician seeing the patient who's gender questioning um so that first consultation with somebody all about that that transition and the pronouns and you know all the all the initial questions and things how do we how do we approach that well i would just say listen listen to the patient and be respectful and acknowledge what they're telling you um and encourage them to to be open with with how they feel so that you can give them the best advice from the medical perspective that you can so initially the the gp's job is to if someone is questioning their gender and wants to be referred is to refer them to gender services not to mental health services unless there's a specific indication for a for a mental mental health referral Mm. And unfortunately, we know the current waiting lists for gender services are extremely, extremely lengthy. And that's one of the things that we're within Indigo within the pilot that we're trying to, to reduce the waiting, the, the, the waiting times. I think that is a, a major barrier for access is the, the weighing up as um, 
is it worth it to wait that long? Like, mm. it, it, it's incredibly, almost paralyzing when you see the length of waiting lists. Mm. It's, it, it's quite, it's very demoralizing. Mm. Yeah. Um, and this is why systems like Indigo are very interesting and fill me with a lot of hope that even if, if national level, it will still be this kind of dysfunctional that at least local mm. healthcare systems are trying to adapt. Um, yeah. And just about listening, something that I really want to make clear is that you're absolutely right that the number one goal is leading allowing the trans person to lead and really listening to them but also with the expectation that they are probably not certain as mm. to the kind of care that they want the kind of care that they need the um what their what the conclusion of their transition journey their gender journey gender journey sure their gender mm. journey will be and they don't, one of the main reasons for that is that part of that journey is healthcare and, and hormones, maybe hormones and what it does to their body and, and how that influences where their gender journey goes, which obviously they, they don't know that because they haven't started it yet. So it's a, a time of huge uncertainty. So it's, it's really important to listen and also expect that your, your answers and what you listen to might not be completely complete or coherent right now but that is no barrier for entry to healthcare. I think that's such a um, lovely thing for us all as GPs here to hear because um, I mean our training we're very kind of as GPs and other clinical practitioners working within primary care about sussing out what the person's um, expectations and ideas are and we get so used to that in so many other presentations but I think um, because the trans health issue is quite new to so many of us we might get a bit um, veer from our usual skills and make yeah. the assumption that the trans person in front of us is come for hormone prescriptions that we don't feel kind of qualified to instigate or or even a referral and why would we make an assumption about what the person would come in with when we don't do that with other presentations yeah. so I think listening mm -hmm. to uh, you say that Ava, I think actually should fill us all with kind of hope we've got these skills as GPs mm -hmm. and, and um, advanced practitioners and you know we, this is what we do so just yeah. need to do it yeah <laughs> for me that's the thing that gps have all the essential skills to be supporting trans and non-binary people not just at presentation but from through their throughout their entire journey and as you say using our communication skills around ideas expectations and, and concerns because um everyone's thoughts on what they need for their transition is different and not everyone follows a standard pathway mm people can choose which options are right for them and we mustn't assume that everyone who is trans wants surgery yeah. wants hormones um, there's very many ways to be trans is there's very many ways to be cis and every person is different and we should respect that from the from the outset of the consultation definitely for me i don't i always think about this i don't know about any other community that has to present themselves to a medical professional mm. to get the help and support they need to, to live their lives i think that's that's a really powerful thing for me. There's such a huge step for, for someone to walk through that door and tell you, tell the person in front of them mm -hmm. that I need support to, or help to be who I am and live the life that I need to, yeah. to, to be. And it really demonstrates quite how, especially in the British context, your GP can make or break mm. your trans experience. And um, I think it's really, really important for GPs to understand that intentionally or unintentionally, they can either be a gatekeeper or they mm. can hold the door. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And just in terms of thinking about um, how many patients out there we might encounter um, kind of in these scenarios, do we know the prevalence of um, gender incongruence in the UK? It's a difficult, it's a difficult one. There's, there's no, there, there's no clear prevalence. It's estimated around 1% mm. of, of the population, maybe trans or, or gender, gender questioning. Uh, but it's really the, the figures are not there. There's never been any large scale study um, or, or figures collected in the 2021 census, though, it was the first time a question was asked about gender, which will be really interesting to, to see the results or gender identity. So um, the, the, the question was, is the gender you identify with the same as the sex you're registered at birth? And that's the first time that's ever appeared mm. on the census. So I think accessing data on any stigmatised community or identity is always going to be difficult because you're countering shame which mm. is a huge barrier especially for a marginalized identity that can feasibly be hidden from cishet society referrals are going up there's been a 240 percent increase in referrals to, to gic's over the last five years and that's not because society is making people trans it's just that trans people Sex are cool enough to do that not trans people and non-binary people are feeling more happy uh, or, or more willing to to seek help around uh, their gender identity absolutely and that's gender yeah. identity clinics isn't it gic that's to the gic sorry gender identity clinics yeah when we're looking at prevalence if we say around one percent i always think well what else is one percent and we were always taught about rheumatoid arthritis being one percent and how much we're taught about rheumatoid arthritis when we go through medical mm. school yeah. and how little we're taught about gender it's identity and mm. trans health as we go through medical school so there's really some significant work that needs to be done in undergraduate and postgraduate education because every gp is going to be seeing trans and non-binary people throughout their career as we move forward and like um, an increasing number although it's small in each GP practice so we have to have a basic grip a basic understanding of the of the the needs of trans and non-binary people and such as the nature of having a public health service which should be a pretty standard level of care across the board is that all of these things need to move at the same they all need to move together in one direction and which requires a lot of outreach to lots and lots and lots of GPs because um, it's not, we won't have health equality unless all mm -hmm. can um, access this care, especially in situations where it's hard to change your GP. Yeah, it's really hard thinking about pulling up everyone to that mm. level when you can change the curriculum. And I think that would be a definitely great start. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the rest of us, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's 550 something GP practices across Greater Manchester. That's a lot of a lot of outreach yeah. for, for, for us to do. And we're within Indigo do education with GP practices and practice teams. But uh, to cover 550 practices <laughs> is a big ask. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we've, we have talked about the consultation um, and we've talked about all those bits about access and we thought the other important area to cover was about um, options that are available to people um, in this situation. So can you talk us through maybe, Joanna and Ava, what questions you might think about from this perspective? Or Yeah, I suppose as, as the mum of a trans woman who's also happened to um, be a GP, suddenly you think differently about something when it's your own kind of child even though they're your grown-up child and you you start to have kind of worries about well if she does choose hormone therapy or what would be the 
um, kind of consequences impact could she come to any harm what you know that those kind of things that obviously you'd want her to to well be well informed about any choice that, that that she she wanted to make so i'd love to hear kind of luke's take on those things mm-hmm. yes having a doing a really detailed risk assessment is really important i think that's one of the biggest jobs we have been working in trans healthcare is making sure that people understand the the benefits and the potential risks of any treatment option that they choose or may want to undertake. And for many trans and non-binary people, hormone therapy is the, the cornerstone of, uh, of treatment and they want hormones to alleviate feelings of discomfort within within their within their body, but also to make them feel more affirmed in their in their gender. Um, and having those effects of either feminizing or masculinizing effects on the body uh, so it's as as we said it's important to talk about uh, the potential implications of hormone therapy and when I'm talking to, to patients about starting treatment I essentially say we're putting you through another puberty just the one you want to go through rather than your one your body was forced to, to go through and that process takes time so for some of the effects of say estrogen therapy if we're talking about trans women can be up to five years to get full feminizing effects so we're not expecting anything to happen over overnight there's some changes that do happen a little bit sooner so um, things like changes in skin softening of, of skin uh, breath breast development start to happen within the first couple of, of months of being on hormone th- hormone therapy um, and one of the important considerations is what effects may be irreversible because um, if a person chose to or needed to stop hormone therapy in the future, it's important that they know what effects may uh, revert uh, back to pre-hormone uh, status and which ones will be permanent. So for trans women or non-binary people taking estrogen, uh, breast growth is one of the irreversible changes. So it wouldn't return to, to, to pre-hormone levels if the patient needed to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, certain other things like uh, skin softening, fat, re- fat redistribution, uh, change in muscle mass. These will all these will all kind of go back to pre-hormone levels, and it's really important at this stage before a person starts hormone therapy to think about the effects on future fertility and whether some uh, that person would want their own biological children in the future because taking hormones, um, estrogen, testosterone blockers uh, can have an irreversible effect on fertility. So gamete storage should be offered to trans people that are wanting to have hormones or surgery prior to, to that. So that's storing of eggs or sperm and trans patients are entitled to that on the, on the NHS. Okay. As far as I'm aware, not all trans women need to take testosterone blockers for estrogen to become effective if that's correct that's correct yeah, yeah. the majority do okay. so uh, the vast majority of, of trans women um, will need a testosterone blocker to suppress their testosterone to within the cis female reference range um, what the, the standard process is to start estrogen first and then get estrogen up over over 200 and then add a blocker because if you add it too soon then you can essentially 
put someone into a menopausal state or mm. or, or having zero mm. sex hormones in your system which can lead to quite uncomfortable uncomfortable side effects yeah mm. um so yes the vast yeah vast majority of, of trans women will be offered offered a blocker but as you say Ava it's really important for regular blood test monitoring yeah. so bloods are done pre-treatment and then depending on what type of estrogen a patient has uh, monitoring is based is based on on that I, I find endocrinology absolutely fascinating mm. and quite empowering for people whose bodies are not what they want them to be yeah. Mm-hmm. Even within trans health, the current treatment guidelines are very binary. Yes. So it's moving from someone being a man to being a woman exactly. and vice versa. So there's a huge amount of work to be done on non-binary identities. And thinking then about the um, hormonal treatments or other treatments for trans males, considering that a bit more, will you talk us mm-hmm. through a couple of those considerations? Yeah, sure. So the mainstay of treatment for trans men is testosterone therapy. So that comes in various different preparations from gels uh, to injections are the two two main formulations. And um, the effects similar to uh, estrogen take some time to, to happen uh, and again can be up to four four or five years to get full masculinization but some effects do happen sooner there are an increasing number of irreversible effects with with testosterone so scalp hair loss facial hair growth voice deepening and clitoral enlargement are all irreversible effects of testosterone therapy um, some of the other effects will revert. So when we say muscle mass and body uh, fat composition will change if the person needed to or wanted to stop hormone therapy. And an important consideration in trans men, again, as well as gamete storage, so, so egg storage is contraception. So if a trans man is having penetrative sex with um, a man and there's ch- uh, with a cis man and there's a chance of pregnancy, mm. it's really important to think about contraception because testosterone is not a contraception and can cause virilization of a, of a fetus. Uh, so it's important to discuss that or the, the or forms of contraception with a trans man. Mm-hmm. So Luke, would um, would it be similar with trans men as trans women that as well as the testosterone, the majority will need some kind of estrogen blocker? No, um, because the you get variable suppression of estrogen with with testosterone, but you get the masculinizing masculinizing effects uh, with the testosterone alone. Uh, so occasionally we use blockers in trans men. It tends to be more for trans men that have persistent periods uh, and bleeding and, and want those to stop and they're not stopping with testosterone alone or other methods such as a progesterone-only pill. And what might be, we mentioned about the earlier about the breast screening for people on estrogen and what might be some of the um, health risks that we would need to be aware of in general practice for people using either the estrogen or testosterone? 
there are some some risks with any form of HRT. You know, I think as GPs, we are really good at doing HRT assessments. It's exactly the same when we're looking at trans women on, on estrogen. We're talking about risks of DVT, uh, VTE, uh, potential risks of uh, ischemic heart disease and breast cancer, breast cancer risk. As we said previously, the, the studies aren't all there in terms of the absolute risk in trans women compared to, to cis women on hormone therapy but the discussions are much along the same line about potential risks we do know that, that vte and blood clots are are a risk um, actually again through more up-to-date data it's seeming less than previously thought because previous studies were looking at older types of estrogen or looking at much higher uh, much higher doses uh, to suppress testosterone but now that we have testosterone blockers we're using lower doses of estrogen to get feminizing uh, feminizing effects which is reducing the risk of blood clots so luke what 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 do you usually suggest when um trans women reach kind of average menopause age and um, when they're when the cis women will be having a natural drop in their estrogen levels, obviously they might opt to go on HRT at that point, but many people don't. So what would you advise a um, trans woman at that point with their estrogen? Mm -hmm. It would be an individual discussion. Most trans women will choose to stay on estrogen long term. It would be safer to change them to a transdermal preparation, so a patch rather than, than pills to reduce the, the risks down of, of, of things like VTE. Um, and you may choose to drop the dose uh, for the trans for, for that trans woman as well if that's what they wanted. But it would be an individual discussion. Uh, but the majority of, of older trans women tend to prefer to stay on some form of estrogen treatment. And um, what about testosterone? Again, um, potentially life lifelong if uh, if the patient wishes uh, with testosterone. Um, I would say if uh, if the person was to stop, then the if some of the effects would would, would re revert back, and that's not often what the patient would would want. So, again, you may look at changing your preparation from an injectable to to a gel uh, to reduce the risks, because in in trans men uh, there are some additional risks, things like polycythemia, which increase with age, which increase with injectable uh, formulations of testosterone, increase with, with weight and smoking. Um, so there's some considerations as people move through their life and there might be a reason why you decide or have a discussion with the patient about a safer or the safest formulation for them. So Luke, in terms of um, the surgical options, what's available on the NHS for trans mm -hmm. patients? Surgery is is limited in its options that are available currently on the NHS for trans uh, trans women. Uh, then genital reconstructive surgery or bottom surgery, as it's known, is is an option. So that's often vulvovaginoplasty. That's the most commonly procedure that's that's undertaken. Breast augmentation and facial feminization um, surgery are not available uh, on the NHS. Okay, okay. And for trans for trans men, top surgery, as it's known, which is double kind of double mastectomy, 
bottom surgery so that's gen genital reconstructive surgery is available on the nhs and there's two main procedures a phalloplasty which is the formation of a penis and metoidoplasty which is the formation of a a, a neophallus or a small a small penis that uses the um, elongated clitoris from testosterone therapy um, which is a much simpler procedure than a phalloplasty I um, discovered recently, because I've been clearly as a mum of a um, trans woman trying to find out as much as I possibly can as medical parents, we often do. Um, and, and I just I was really wondering about how you would do cervical screening on a trans man who'd had bottom surgery. But then I discovered, Luke, and I'm sure tell me if I'm wrong, is that um, all men, be, all trans men before they have bottom surgery have a hysterectomy so they don't have a cervix. Mm. Is that right? Yes, you don't need to access the cervix because it'll be removed um, dur during during surgery. And often it's a, a stepwise surgery. So it can be up to three procedures uh, for bottom surgery for, for trans men. Um, so coming to the close of the conversation now, in terms of resources, because that's what we're all after, mm -hmm. um, can you recommend any resources for people listening mm -hmm. to access both clinicians and patients? Mm -hmm. Yes, so within Indigo, we've worked on uh, a huge amount of different resources. So our website, indigogenderservice.uk, has lots of information around different services that patients can access. We've got all our patient information leaflets around hormone therapy, uh, surgical procedures, and a section for healthcare providers around hormone prescribing. Um, the LGBT Foundation and particularly Pride in Practice have, have lots of resources and education and I'd recommend any GP practices within Greater Manchester particularly to sign up to, to Pride in Practice. Uh, Gyrus is the Gender Identity Research and Education Society, mm. which has lots of e-learning modules, resources, and they also do kind of face-to-face -face and, and remote education and training as, as well. Yeah. So an excellent resource. And finally, I'd like to mention about the WPATH, which is the World Professional Association of Gen Transgender Health. So they have international guidelines about standards of care for trans health uh, the next version the standards of care 8 is due out in december this year uh, the last version the standards of care 7 was published almost 10 years ago now so we're hoping for some sig significant updates in the uh, standards of care 8 and I guess I can put a plug in for some of the RCGP resources. They, within the last few years, they've put a lot of online learning related to LGBTQ health um, with some great modules on, on trans health. And um, and clearly it's a, an area of interest for the um, RCGP. Um, there was, it was very kind of prominently focused in the conference that um, happened in October. Um, so that was really good to see lots of great information. Um, the LGBT Foundation are particularly good. They also mm -hmm. offer... Um, in-house therapy, LGBT affirming therapy, which a lot of trans people, um, myself included, would very would, would appreciate a lot um, because mm -hmm. due to a variety of factors, including uh, gender dysphoria, as well as just uh, external factors leading to mental health issues, a lot of trans people do have mental health. Like my, I, I've got, I'm, I've got a diagnosed anxiety disorder, and we would certainly benefit from greater access to a like, very affirming therapy and counselling which the LGBT foundation does offer mm. with regard to other resources that trans people could access um oh there's a um 
There is a Greater Manchester Mutual Aid Society for um, trans people because they offer like you can apply for funding and they, they do it by case by case basis and you, you just put your application in and they can often get you money and funding or food as well because statistically trans people are disproportionately homeless mm. because of and, and LGBT people are disproportionately homeless because a very common factor in LGBT people's lives from families who are less accepting than my own is eventually being eventually just being kicked out and not having access to family resources to the same extent as other people yeah. which which compounds issues which also leads to other issues like how trans and LGBT people are disproportionately um users of illegal substances so that also is a consideration when it comes to LGBT and trans healthcare um but then I'm leading I'm talking like I'm leading to some kind of plug like a needle exchange or something, but I don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm just sort of chatting. No, I think you're raising yeah. such an important point, which we have talked about before. And But this episode is focused so much on the transition mm. um, when actually there's a lot more that we can look yeah. at. So it's, yeah, uh, trans, trans healthcare is any healthcare accessed by a trans person, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah, so thinking about the factors that disproportionately affect Absolutely. the trans yeah. and non-binary community. And it's largely just shoring up our healthcare system for every vulnerable person, of which trans people will make up their ranks. Yeah. And therefore, um, we should get vulnerable healthcare nailed mm. so everyone is getting the healthcare that they need and fundamentally deserve. Yeah, I believe, Luke, you probably may know better than me, but there was a study published showing that 50% of trans people had had suicidal ideation in the preceding 12 months. Was, I don't know if you'd, you'd read that. It's certainly one of the things that was presented at conference, mm -hmm. at RCGP conference. Yes, yeah, trans people particularly, I would say, have higher rates of anxiety, depression, mm -hmm. suicide, suicidality, unfortunately, and it's not that being trans causes these mental health problems, it's that being trans in society is often very difficult. There are uh, my, minority stresses, microaggressions, constant um, societal pressures and norms mm -hmm. that people that people face that make it very hard for people to to live as as they are, uh, which leads to these increased rates of, mm. of of mental health issues. Speaking of which, I have actually remembered a resource which trans people can access. Thinking about experiences leading to mental health issues in trans people's lives thinking about the time when I was followed around Manchester, uh, which was really scary. And uh, what eventually solved it was I wandered into um, Affleck's Palace, which is a third party hate, hate crime reporting centre. And there's an incredibly lovely man there called Paul, who <laughs> I can strongly recommend. He's very helpful. But um, any kind of third party hate crime reporting centre mm. are generally very, very good and can strongly recommend. Affleck's Palace is and has always been a safe space for social outsiders I'm so sure my mum can affirm as well. Yeah, um, I can also affirm. <laughs> big fan. Plug in Affleck's Palace. It's great. It is a staple of the Manchester um, underbelly and the, mm. the, the Manchester subcultures because something I absolutely adore about this city is, in my opinion, more than any other, it is defined by its outsiders and by its oddballs and by its edge cases more than its normative centre. Mm. Manchester, we do things differently around here. Like it is a place in which we build communities that help everybody and not just helping the majority. And um, I'm fully not surprised that something as groundbreaking as Indigo 
is happening in Greater Manchester. Like, of course it is. Absolutely. <laughs> where else would it happen? Exactly. Where else would it happen? Perfect. <laughs> just so on brand. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I could wax lyrical. To say that. <laughs> I love this city. Big fan. Big yeah. fan of this city for lots of reasons. <laughs> Lovely. So just thinking about summing up, um, if we go around the room, um, we just want kind of your take home points that you want the listeners to remember most from the discussion we've had today. For me, I would say that it's really important to remember that being trans is not a mental health condition. It's a matter of diversity and not pathology. And we should listen to every trans person's story as medical professionals um, and respect each and every person's individual journey and help them along that journey when we can. Well, mine, I think, is a message obviously very much coloured by the fact that I'm our now a mum of a trans person is for um, GPs and primary care clinicians to to not be frightened, to um, to build their confidence. I mean, I qualified um, in the 90s and medicine's not the same now as it was then. There's been all sorts of things I've needed to learn en route in order to continue to be a, you know, a decent GP in 2021. And trans health is is another one of those. We know that people working within primary care can rise to this challenge. So, you know, I hope that that people feel that they can for for the sake of um, people like you know my daughter and 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 others. Um, in a similar vein, I would um, like to talk to trans people who are just beginning their journey of accessing healthcare, which is to also not be afraid and to tell them that you deserve this care on your terms and. Um, it will be difficult. There are lots of structural reasons why it is will be quite frustrating and why there will be barriers. And there are really good people working on ameliorating those problems. Um, but it will be a little bit of an uphill struggle. But you deserve it. It is worth it. You are worth it. And there are people who will help you. And there are things like Indigo and the LGBT Foundation who will help you do it. And have faith keep going keep going forwards brilliant yeah thank you all so so much absolutely fabulous to have all of your perspectives privilege thank you, thank you as well thank you for having us thank Complete you for having privilege. us thank you so that was an absolutely amazing episode um so what are your learning points lisa yeah, I completely echo. I thought it was absolutely amazing to be able to speak to look Joanna and Eva and get all of their different perspectives um, on such an important subject area. Um, I think I was struck um, a little bit. The thing I've written at the top of my little bit of notes is about kind of assumptions and about challenging that assumption. I think it was Eva that said it, um, that appearance and gender um, and how things aren't always as they appear and you shouldn't really make assumptions about people because they might have that incongruity in how they're feeling. Mm -hmm. And so that's really important. But also the assumption in terms of assuming that if a trans um, or non-binary person is coming to see you that they're looking for treatment because that's not always going to be the case. And I think that was a really interesting point to have made as well because they yeah. might not know or they might be uncertain um, and yeah I thought I find that really interesting yeah don't forget your basics ice that we <laughs> <laughs> ideas concerns expectations or you know um, and just yeah sort of that welcoming environment and that that welcoming um attitude really of, of just being open-minded I thought was absolutely fabulous and like you said with the not taking it for granted what what gender people identify as and um, I hadn't really appreciated where the pronoun badges or yeah um, sort of that type of thing fitted in but now I see yeah that's that's absolutely amazing and that's a really easy way of, of kind of 
clearly identifying allies and yeah I thought that was really brilliant as well those bits that we can pick up on make sure that we are creating safe spaces completely as much as possible and also what she said about access I thought was really interesting what Ava said that um, actually some of the telephone things and <laughs> that actually yeah. that's been um, lowering barriers which was quite interesting that was a obviously good loads about becoming face-to-face which we are doing lots of face-to-face appointments um, <laughs> in general practice but um, that sometimes it can be quite useful to have um, to have other other ways of accessing yeah completely um I also found it was um it was quite important to talk about um the coding um, and the name changes and the um the gender changes on records and what impact that can have and that there are pros and cons um, for patients um, and how it's really important to have that um discussion with them so that they can make an informed decision about what they want to do with their own records um because i was struck by the fact I, I, i didn't know that if someone did change the gender on their records that they wouldn't be automatically called for screening and that that was a process that every single time they'd have to opt in mm. um which as we, we we discussed in the episode massively widens health inequalities for these patients that already mm. s- kind of suffer from health inequalities mm. um and it just seemed very unfair um and i'm glad that luke talked about the fact that there is maybe a move towards organ-based screening um, and how there might be a way out of that but yeah i was quite surprised mm. it does feel like it's um not anywhere near where it should be right now and um, no I thought it was really interesting talking about hormone therapies, going through what's irreversible and what's not. Yes. And I really also liked talking about gamete storage as well. Oh, yes, that was really interesting and not something that would necessarily automatically cross your mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been a fascinating learning path. The, The resources are just so so important because it's quite hard to find decent resources so I, I, I do really value them and I've been kind of trying to spot up as much as possible and I find I found some really interesting things on the BBC or Netflix or you know that about you know that just can enlighten your view of of the community because it's I think there's not a lot of people know necessarily know people who are transgender and I think then it's about us educating ourselves and there's other ways in which to do that exactly Um, and again a big shout out to um, Eva for coming on the episode and giving us that perspective that a lot of people might not have heard before so that was really really vital for her to do and we really appreciate it yeah she's phenomenal thank you also to everyone listening really appreciate it it's been a long one (laughs) and um yeah i hope you got a lot from it and um yeah if you've got any feedback you can uh, reach us in several different ways we'll link to ways in which you can contact us or we also have an anonymous survey that you can use as well and that's in the episode description along with all the resources that we have as well yep um and um if you want to um share it with friends um tell people about us um get the word out especially about this episode because we really feel like um, we want it to be shared so that people really do understand this topic area and um, so please do tell people give us a review um kind of spread the word if you can yeah and we know that we haven't covered everything and that we focused on transitioning Um, and hopefully there'll be other ways in which that we can cover other aspects till next time on primary care knowledge boost This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2021. 
Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.